Robert Fulford is the greatest <laughs> literary journalist in Canada. Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. I'll, I'll put it on my tombstone if you don't mind. <laughs> We're here today to talk in general terms about Canadian book design and then more specifically about one great designer in particular, Alan Fleming. So to start with, as, as I understand it, there was a real, if not renaissance, then an explosion of creativity around the word in the mid-50s, thinking it corresponds with yeah. the establishment of the Typographers Designers Association of yeah. Canada in the mid-50s, Carl Dare and others. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Why do you think it coalesced as it did? We're way behind Europe and behind New York in most of our design books. I think there was a, a feeling that we should we should be able to do it better, and it didn't cost that much money. So all these people began talking about it. I can't say one definite thing made the difference, but before the late 60s, there was already this discussion of book design, magazine design. The Tamarack Review, you know, was much, much, much the best design publication in the literary field we'd ever had. You know, it was... That was like an outlandishly good. If the previous literary magazines were a 10, that was a, this was a 60, you know, or 70, mm-hmm. much better. Bill Toy was a part of that, main designer, and Alan Fleming did some covers for them. Same with Frank Newfeld. And yes, yeah. the, there was a kind of a, a coming together of a few people like that who yeah. were very interested in it. And most of them came from, from abroad. Newfeld was from uh, Czechoslovakia. Fleming had training in London. Leslie Smart was another Englishman. Uh, Paul Arthur trained in uh, Switzerland. He had at least a couple of years on a major magazine of design there. And he actually introduced... Here and Now. That was a magazine that had a, a short life, but a very exciting one. There were only four issues. I can remember. I was I was younger than those people, so I was upper high school. They were graduating from university. Dorothy Cameron was one of the people on Paul Arthur, and I've forgotten the others at the moment. I think probably James Rainey, but not for sure. Anyway, they, they had a quite an interesting group there at the University of Toronto. Fleming was no part of that. By then he was he was still a bit of a teenager then, I think. He went off to England and uh, fell into, I think, design. Had a very, very low position as an office boy or something, a design firm. And then he showed a talent for it and did some designing. By the time he came back, he had a feeling for it. He also studied with some of the greats, uh, Stanley Morrison, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I don't uh, know if he studied with them, but he, he, he picked it up influenced from, yeah. So he brought that back to Canada with he him. He didn't, didn't go to school there, I don't think. But anyway, he was close enough to see see what it was all about. And Alan, among his many, many qualities, had an ability to single out the people who, who could teach him. He was ready to learn from the different fields around him. He learned a lot about music from the people at the art college who were deeply into music, and he learned a lot about journalism from when he worked with journalists and things like art, fine art. In the 1950s, we were just starting to have art galleries, independent art galleries in Toronto. I should say that we had a few over the years, but then we are getting some more. Obviously another interesting circumstance that might contribute to Will. Yeah, it definitely affected Alan Fleming because he did the invitation to every show, a place called the Gallery of Contemporary Art on Gerard Street, which was kind of a, a bohemian village for a while there. We had a French bookstore, French restaurant. There was a, a store that sold fabrics, 1950s cool Norwegian or Danish fabrics, and Barry Kernerman put in Gallery of Contemporary Art. I think he ran it for two or three years, and he was, it was really an outstanding gallery. Since he was a painter himself, and he had a high sense of quality. And that's where Louis de Niverville 
had his first of many shows. It's where Harold Town has his first show of paintings. He had Prince Joe also. That was the number one show of painting. They did a did a show of pre-Columbian art from Mexico. And that show was remarkable in a way because one of the people who came was Joseph Hirschhorn, the famous uh, collector who is now the Hirschhorn Gallery in Washington. He came to that show and he bought up the whole show. Hirschhorn had, was a buying maniac. He had a warehouse in Brooklyn and when the dealer packed it up, they put it in the warehouse. In some cases, I think he never looked at it again. It was just the hunt and the you know, the chase and the, the victory, and then that was it. Barry uh, made contact with Alan Fleming, and about the same time I did, around the same time I got to know Alan, Alan had a house on St. Thomas Street, and the garage at the back of it was his studio. He was setting up as an independent designer. He did this and that and the other thing, and did a little advertising and he sort of got a feel for it. He got his name around the Christmas, the, the Gallery of Contemporary Art. I remember someone saying that someone would be wise to make a collection of all the invites to the Gallery of Contemporary Art. I don't know if anybody did. Maybe Barry Kerneman did. Anyway, Gallery lasted only a couple of years, but it made a, a, a name. And right around the corner was the Isaac Gallery, which went on to become the main gallery of English-speaking Canada. So as much as anything, it was his uh, exposure to artists and to that, yes, yes. that world that, that informed his sensibility, I suppose. Definitely. If he met five artists in a day and saw a bit of their work, he would know right away which one he could learn from. In a sense, he was a little bit like uh, some architects are. They could, they could pick up from what's in the air around an artist, whatever is going to be worth doing. But let me tell you a little bit about the personality of Alan Fleming. He's not like anyone else. Forget the idea of a, a personality of a, a designer. First of all, he's handsome. He's extremely well-dressed. He's very cool, isn't he's he? He's so cool, you can't believe it. He would make on anyone a good impression. He had a deep voice, and he spoke in senses. So that's, that's not a designer. Yes, Except he yes. was a designer. He was the best designer, but he was the unlikeliest designer. Maybe that's why he was drawn to books. Yeah, he was well-read. And he was a book collector, too. Yeah. Yeah. He was obviously charismatic, likable, and I've also read that he, he's able to bring people in different fields together. He's galvanized. Yeah, he did. Now, he had a strange career. Not for strange for him, but strange for designers. You don't often see a designer who designs a big magazine. McLean's. McLean's is the chief designer at a, at a print house, Cooper's and Beatty. That was a design shop of Toronto. And so he did designs for all sorts of commercial project. Now, 1962, I was working on uh, McLean's magazine as an editor, and he came around to see me, and we chatted, this and that, and I knew, and he knew, that the art director of McLean's was not happy. He'd been there 10 years, and in some ways, McLean's wasn't happy with him either, but he was thinking of leaving. I never dreamt with Kate Allen Fleming, because he was going so fast. Anyway, so I chatted with him, and I said, because you wouldn't want it, would you? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, yeah. And then he referred to, then or now, he referred to every designer has to seek uh, the great white whale of magazine design. So clearly he wasn't driven by money. No, no. Well, so I spoke to the editor, Ken LaFoley, and LaFoley and uh, Zosky, who was the number two editor, they got very excited about it, and they took him out for lunch, and he was hired. He was there, but not for very long. I think it was a year and a half or so. I guess he just wanted to come in, make his mark. And that's what he did. I don't know if he knew that in the beginning, but he certainly didn't want to hang around forever because the magazine design is very repetitive. 
But in addition to that, you uh, have to deal, deal with a lot of different people. You may or may not be sympathetic with your point of view. So uh, he was there a year and a half. I've forgotten how long. But he was there for a certain period. And then he said he had to go elsewhere. And then he went to McLaren. McLaren was the age of Canada. But the interesting thing is, on those people, advertising people, he made an incredibly good impression. He was serious, smoke pipe, smoke pipe. Yeah, just like uh, Ogilvy. Yeah. He was a very solid character. Ed Cowan worked there with him. Ed Cowan was later the publisher of Saturday Night. But Cowan worked there for three or four years in the uh, McLaren office. And he said, whenever you were trying to sell anything to a client, you got Alan to sell it. He knew all the words. He knew what to say. He was a very good salesman, which is so unlike a designer. Yes. How many yes. designers do we know about that? <laughs> a guy who would actually do a beautiful design yeah. and go over and sell, sell a client? I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a show that I'm mesmerized by these days, Mad Men. Oh, yeah. This, I've seen them all. This character, Don Draper, yeah. I mean, obviously his private life is a different story, but... Yeah. Would you say there's parallels there? Certainly he's suave, he's eloquent, and they typically did bring him in to pitch big business. Yeah. The difference is, I think Fleming is more credible. He did have some of that um, assurance that Don Draper has, no question. But he was a much more solid guy, I think. But the effect is, you're right, somebody somebody in the office knows, if we've got a salesman here, let's get him selling, because we've all got to sell this place all the time. There's always a, uh, a client... Dropping out. Someone's stealing it. Yeah. A client yeah. all the time. So we've got to be selling all the time. And he can come up with the most brilliant observation, the bigger picture observation. He would put, be able to put it in perspective and have an intelligent conversation, and the design then would just sort of come as a natural consequence of him knowing exactly what was called for. Yeah. That's, that's what Fleming was like. I mean, he wasn't an account executive, but he was... I forgot what his title was there. Yeah. But he certainly was uh, available to everyone in the agency. Quite a resource. Yeah, b- yeah, quite a resource and quite a... I hope he was very well paid because uh, they were a very rich agency in those days. They were a General Motors agency. Were uh, they liberals as well? Liberals, yes, two things, yeah. So then he uh, made an interesting turn by <coughs> by working as the... UNC Press. Press, yeah. Press. But before we leave the, the other side of things... Is there something that defined his design work? Well, the interesting thing is, I thought there was when I began to see it. I saw it in the early days, you see. But he, he later on branched out in so many directions that it was no longer possible to categorize him. I would say he was definitely a bookish man, and his designs had a bookish style to them. But then they had some very unbookish styles, too. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, I mean... A certain kind of design that doesn't depend upon type, cast type, type to one side, and it has images and so on. And I think he was very good at that too. And of course, you know the CN. They still use now, you know, yeah, fifty know. years on. Hard to believe, incredible. Right? Yeah. I knew I knew Alan when he was working on it. He would explain to you why he was doing it. He had just done CN when he joined the planes previous year. And the interesting thing is, in a funny way, where some journalists found him a little too intellectual. And here's what happened. He'd been hired by McLean's, but he hadn't come on the job. So he appeared on television because CN was just announcing its new logo. And he was interviewed on, on Tabloid, famous television show that period. And he explained that all the, the symbols that last forever are the symbols based on one line, and they're, they're also as one even line. It gave a little aesthetic talk about the even line. So 
Zosky watched that, and he came in the office the next day and said, I think we bought a phony. The guy's, that's a complete, I think he's a fraud. I said, what, so what do you mean by that? He said, well, he went into this whole number, the even line history of design and everything. Anyway, Zosky got to love him in the end. Admire him and love him, but he was affronted by the articulateness of this guy. Yeah, designers aren't supposed to be able to talk as, as well as we can. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Emotional, creative, using the other side of the brain, right? I think uh, Zosky learned a couple of things from that, which I hope he did anyway. I know he did. Yeah. So the design itself, then... Uh, See, that design is not necessarily a bookish design. But it's, but it's because of his book knowledge. Yes, that's right. He brought that to his creativity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When he went to the U of T, he was involved in, in quite a few different publications, but a lot of them won significant international awards, yeah. and one of them in particular was the uh, Economic Atlas of Ontario. Yeah. you have any recollections of, of that? I remember it was gorgeous. Yeah. And, uh, and I saw it, I paged through it, and I can't remember much much more, you know. Yeah. Well, he worked with the with Catherine Monk, the monk anyway, at the at the NFB. Oh yes. And, they and he worked on the Year of the Land. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that book again, as you said, it's filled with bright, brilliant, expansive yeah. photographs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it was around the 1967 celebrations, yeah. and I kind of connect that. Bigness, and he used big typefaces with Canada's centenary. Yeah, for sure. The, the look of that <clears throat> era. If I'm wrong, correct me, but I think the Year of the Land has an introduction by Bruce Hutchison, and it's all in italic. And I said to Alan, it's a wonderful book, but you can't read that fucking introduction. <laughs> you can't read body type in italic. And it's about legibility, isn't it? It should be. Yeah. You can't read, I can't read it. Yeah. No one will read it. And Alan said, I know. It's terrible. It's a terrible piece of <laughs> it's absolute shit. By then, Bruce, I, just, I, I, I suspected it, but I, 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 but he, he said no. He said, At that time, Bruce Hutchison was like a, a saint. Yeah, you know, yeah. you couldn't possibly say, Bruce, would you really write this and take out all this crap? So again, he used his design brilliance to affect what? The way it was received. Which was not at all. Well, you, actually, you don't even think of that often, do you? You think about the idea is to communicate the message of the author, but a, the designer can have just as much say in what does yeah. and doesn't, what doesn't get, get through. through. I know it, it sold quite well. Oh, yes. It was, it was a big deal. Uh, it was a, a big, big thing for, uh, for the film board, yeah. Big thing for them. What else strikes you about the books that he designed? How did what he do influence others? Well, I mean, there's a guy named Robert MacDonald who I ran into at Banff Center when I was teaching there. And MacDonald did the publications there, and he also looked, looked after the branch of teaching I was doing. And MacDonald had worked in a U of T office under Fleming. As far as he was concerned, that was the beginning of life for him. I mean... Fleming told him, do this, do this, do this, and he, you'll find out if this, you do this, you'll like this, and you won't like this. He was like a Joe job, doing a Joe job, and when he left there, he felt he was emerging as a professional, and all under Fleming. He was just a complete product of Fleming's influence. I think, in a way, he influenced some book designers by the excellence he developed at the University of Toronto Press. 
For instance, uh, by no way influence my idea of what it should look like. You know, they have the Erasmus uh, set at U of T. I think that's almost perfect. Maybe it's perfect. I just love it. This big long-term project, yeah. right? And he's put the template together for that. That's right. The great thing about the U of T press has been its, uh, its ability to get a project going and keep on building into the system and yeah. uh, not give up on it, you know? Publishing things that no one else would publish, but yeah. they've committed to it. Yeah. They did that with the John Stuart Mill material, and they did that with, with the Erasmus material. Now, Erasmus is kind of interesting because it's a historic project. It's the first time all that material has ever been printed in English, probably the last time, because the rec- there'll be another form. There might be a retranslation of another generation, but it won't be printed on paper. But can be pretty sure, you know. It'll stand as a... This is one Fleming's one. And every time I look at one of those books, I think of Alan... And I turn the pages, even if it's a part of the Erasmus I'm not interested in. I'm very interested in certain things of them, but just turning the pages is a pleasure, even if there's not much there to read, you know. I wrote an article for the Imperial uh, Review. It was called, it was always called Erasmus of Rotterdam. And the article is called Erasmus of Toronto, because he's been, this is one place where he's been gathered together. And, so, and all the editing was done, either here or directed from here. So we sort of adopted Erasmus, the greatest uh, figure of, of that kind in the Renaissance. I wonder why. Was he told to do it, or was he drawn to it? I wonder. Uh, Fleming? Yeah. I think he arrived there, and they were into it. They were planning it. Right. I think because when you talk about that, that kind of thinker, Erasmus, uh, Fleming, it, it seems to... Yeah. It's, it's perfect, perfect for it, because he would know enough to respect it. You also know enough to know the scholars don't know more than he does. <laughs> so it sounds like it's a, his approach was a very cerebral approach. It's a, it, he did a lot of thinking about the design before he actually put anything on paper. Would that be fair to say? It's not easy to say that because I think that's true, but I, I don't really know it because he wouldn't talk about something like, oh, I'm doing this, I have to work. He would just sort of deliver something. You know? That's so interesting, isn't it? You, yeah. There are different levels of reaction. There, there's a, a sort of aesthetic appreciation, but then I suppose if required, he would have all of the background to explain why he arrived at that yes. depiction. Art directors come in a long range. At one end, they read the first paragraph of an article. That's what they read. They never read the rest of it. You pick up the phone to call the photographer. Now, at the other end, an art director will think his way through. You'll read the whole article, sometimes three or four times. You'll mark it up on his copy, and then he'll make a list of things you might do with it. And then he'll do it. That doesn't take a month, but it's a, a careful approach to things. Well, it's well, a, it's I, an I, interested I, approach. It's interested in the content. Now, many, many designers don't like to read. Fleming's at the other end. There's such a thing as a, as a perfect summary in a way. Any other reflections on the importance of design to books, particularly in the Canadian context? Oh. Why is it important for us to value what Alan Fleming and others did? Well, think about books in Canada on, on two levels, at least two levels, and one would be popular novels, and another level would be academic books. Fleming did very little among novels. Mm-hmm. He had very little to do with that. The whole onrush of prose that really began with Atwood's earliest successes. And then, of course, Gallant and uh, Monroe, Lawrence. 
Richler. Interesting, interesting, the first four names I mentioned are women. women. Anyway, these were not books that Alan ever did. No, so, it's mostly so, nonfiction. He did a bit of poetry. Yeah, yeah, a bit of poetry. And art books. Art books, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, well, the one we are just looking at it, but, but also uh, a photography books. I don't think that was a particular choice of hers, because, but rather that here were the opportunities and the serious, of doing serious work, you know. U of T was obviously a very good place for that. It's the kind of place where you would know that if you started on the Erasmus, you might not be there for the end, but U of T would be there for the end, probably. Yeah. Whereas publishing uh, popular writing for the mass market is... Uh, Bit of a crapshoot. Yeah. But but that doesn't answer my question. Why should we value what he did, particularly as it pertains to books? And not just what he did, but that whole group of people who brought so much life to the words of Canadian writers. Well, to me, the great thing about the Tamarack was the context. We had some magazines that would do popular, almost Saturday New Post-like stories, we had some magazines that would do literary stories, but they weren't very good looking, and they make a statement. The Tamarack Review made a statement. Their goal was to publish the good writers in a, in a context of excellence. So you wouldn't have one good story followed by four bad stories. You wouldn't do that. Okay? It makes, makes the one bad story look either too good or, or too bad or whatever. You know. So the context was what the, the Tamarack Review did. Marrying excellence in both of these fields, yeah, the content ideally, and the design. Ideally. This was something new. Yeah, I think one was new in Canada. Yeah. You're really honoring prose when you print properly, when you, when you give it its, uh, its proper uh, surround. Not always perfect by any means, but we, we learned to do that through Fleming's and his generations, group of people, many of whom uh, lasted longer than he did. Theo Dimson was one of his contemporaries. You know, Theo died about a week ago. Theo Dimson became famous for his theatrical uh, posters, but he did an awful lot of other design as well. But why should we value this? Well, excellence is, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. <laughs> Something like that. And excellence is, is, a, is its own reward to a culture. So why should Canadians be interested in acquiring these books and, and looking at them, having them? The, the books that Fleming would have designed, a work that Bill Toy might have done, or Frank Newfeld, or Will Reuter, people like that. Yeah. Well, there was this enormous movement in the 60s, most of whose proponents are, are dead now. George Woodcock, Robert Weaver, Jack McCollum, four or five people, six maybe, who were trying to build a literary community of Canada. What good is a literary community? The literary community is, a, is good because it exchanges ideas which fertilize each other, and you have better literature, and therefore a more enlightened people. This can, can be done best by, I think, by a, a context of excellence in which these people work. So it's, it's about enlightenment, then. It's about yeah. appreciation of what's been achieved and paying homage yeah. to that, and then knowing what is excellent so that you can compare it to what comes? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And also, of course, when you look at a book of, of Erasmus, for example, it's excellent in its own self. I mean, Erasmus was a person of excellence, and his, his knowledge and his intelligence swept across all of Europe. And that, to know about him, if you know something about him, and nobody knows everything, but if you know something about him, you know something about how uh, European culture was created, and 
what it is we're heard to. And what it is we should strive for. Yeah, that's right. I like your comment about excellence, meeting excellence, and then valuing that for... I guess I'm just trying to get a justification for, for collecting books, justifying why I want to inform Canadians about achievement that is worthy of celebration. Part of it's almost chemical. I mean, a certain way, you're ready. You were, when, you're, when you were much younger, you were ready, and you're even readier now to be, appreciate books, and you feel have a feel for them. It's almost chemical. I mean, something that can be brought up by bookish parents in a wonderful library and never care about what those books are. Right. Yeah. Some people have wonderful writers for their parents, and they have no idea why they, why that matters. You know, uh, there are two, two monks sitting side by side in the 15th century in Europe working on copying, and one of them is learning how to copy beautifully with a beautiful hand. Very hard to do. Hard to do. I couldn't do it. And furthermore, he's learning what all these things he's copying, he's learning. He's saying, oh my God, that's what he said. The guy sitting beside him is just a copier. You know, they probably had the very same background, the same education. Mm -hmm. Genes or something. And, and I think a tremendous amount of, I don't for a moment disparage hard work, and ambition, all those things are good. Curiosity is essential. But we who love these things, we love them by uh, instinct, mm -hmm. which I say it's almost chemical. Uh, again, you see, you see two professors. They both worked like hell for years. Both got the PhD and then both postgraduate work. Both became, to some extent, leaders in their field. And one of them is a man who's alive, as alive as any human being in the world. Yeah. The other guy's dead. No matter what, he's dead. Yeah. Never touched him. And I have no idea. I have no idea what that means. How can that be? Yeah. I've seen it so, hundred, so many times in my life. There's one guy in Toronto, now dead, I knew him quite well. Somebody told him, I think his father, told him he should have been patron of the arts. He became a patron of the arts. He sat on the board of this. He gave money to that. Helped them out of trouble. Saved the day here. And I think none of it ever touched him for a minute. He was a dull, stodgy, backward-thinking guy. Nevertheless, he was always on the side of helping the arts. His heart was in the right place, but... He was at the concerts, too. He probably had more more Verdi played over his head than any six people you know. <laughs> and as for Shakespeare... Shutting out for 40 years. Right. I think he was as dull when he died as he was, well, I'm sure he was, mm. as when he was 20 years old. Just finally, then, if this is so just an instinct, then there's a desire to share the joy. Absolutely. It's like, Absolutely. I'm getting so much pleasure, we get so much pleasure. Here's why you should. Yeah. But can you do that? Is it possible to, to convince people to, to enjoy? Yeah. You can't convince people who won't be convinced, but there's a lot of people that are waiting for things like that. They're wanting for, they're waiting for these things to happen in their life. And you, uh, you can help. Anybody can help by making available these yeah. things. Well, I think that's, that's basically what this is about. So I, I thank you for making available uh, to us your, <laughs> Doing my best. your appreciation and evident uh, respect and admiration for Alan Fleming, one of the great Canadian uh, graphic and, and book designers. Yeah. I still miss him. Uh, it's a long time since he died, but the uh, 70s. It sounds like, yeah, just being in his presence was just yeah. invigorating. Huh? Yeah, I think he was, he was a funny guy, too. He, oh, okay. he kid you, kid you about things. I don't know. Yeah. It was fun.